I think there is a muddy point about giving a person with COPD too much oxygen. Okay, in a person with normal lungs, an increase in PCO2 is the mechanism that stimulates an increase in the rate of ventilations to blow off the CO2. But with a person who has COPD, over time, there develops a tolerance for high PCO2s. They learn to live with hypercapnia, maybe 60 millimeters of mercury or even higher. And remember, normal is 35 to 45. So what is the mechanism to increase ventilations for this person if they have normally a very high CO2? That would be hypoxemia. So it would not be prudent to flood that person with high O2 flows. Increased O2 or, or increased oxygen delivery could knock out this person's stimulus to breathe and their respiratory rate might drop, which isn't a good thing. It's important to remember, though, that this person should be given the oxygen that they need. We shouldn't deprive them of oxygen, but we should start out with low flow rates and then titrate upwards based on their vital signs and level of consciousness and, of course, ABGs when we can get them. I hope this clears up the muddy point some for you. I know you all had some questions last week in our discussion about respiratory disorders and they were, you know, the muddiest points. And so I collected all that information and kind of divided the questions up into four specific categories. And let me just try to answer those questions maybe in a little bit more detail than what we had in class. And hopefully this will kind of clear things up for you so things won't be so muddy. Okay, there was a question about uh, the pathophysiology of emphysema. Remember, emphysema is abnormal, permanent enlargement of alveoli, destruction of the alveolar walls, and breakdown of connective tissue that supports the lower airway. Now, in the airways, the thing that kind of triggers this is a downward progression of repeated inflammation. And it can also not only be inflammation, it can be proteolytic enzymes. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Now, there's destruction of lung tissue. The alveolar walls actually are like they break down. They're destroyed. So that results in decreased surface area for gas exchange. The connective tissue and the bronchioles is also damaged. So the bronchioles collapse during exhalation and air is trapped. And so because of those pathological changes that occur, mainly related to smoking and air pollution, we see emphysema occurring. Now many students thought that alpha-antitrypsin, AAT, was the muddiest point of the whole presentation. And I have to apologize because I think I got all mixed up on the way even to pronounce that particular enzyme that we're talking about. But it is called alpha-antitrypsin. Now, what is that? Well, in the lungs, there are enzymes, and trypsin is one of those, 
that actually breaks down tissue during growth and repair of lung tissue. Normally, proteolytic enzymes such as trypsin are active during growth and repair of lung tissue. Now, proteolytic, remember, means it breaks down protein, lysis protein, if you will. And normally this occurs, and it is also, luckily, this enzyme is opposed by a um, another enzyme that's called alpha-antitrypsin. It's antitrypsin. And that helps keep that enzyme of trypsin kind of in check so that it doesn't do damage. Now that's normal. But there are some people who have a genetic defect which results in no or not enough alpha-antitrypsin. And so those people can get emphysema without ever having smoked or, you know, have that kind of lung damage that m most of the time we see with emphysema. They have, like, uh, trypsin is sort of overrun in those people, and they have no opposition to it. So trypsin is left to destroy norm normal lung tissue in these people, and they develop uh, emphysema at a much earlier age than we normally see. Now keep in mind that this is only about 2% of the cases of emphysema and I'm sorry that you got so confused about it because it, it's an interesting phenomenon that's for sure but it's not the usual way that people develop emphysema and that of course is through smoking and environmental pollutants. Now, you also thought that the pathophysiology of chronic bronchitis was kind of confusing, so let me try to make that a little bit clearer as well. Chronic bronchitis is inflammation of the bronchi, and it's obviously chronic. It's not an acute type of illness like most of us have had. With this, we see an increased production of mucus and chronic productive cough. It results from repeated exposure of the airways to irritants that trigger inflammation, stimulate irritant receptors, making sputum and increase in cough. There's also impaired ciliary production, which adds to the obstruction. And then, of course, that sputum, all that mucus, is a wonderful breeding ground for germs, so infection is increased. Now, both emphysema, chronic bronchitis, are obstructive disorders. They result in an increase in CO2, a decrease in O2, and respiratory acidosis results. Let's talk for a moment about corpulmonale. Now, when blood passes through an area of the lung that has no air, the pulmonary vessel carrying the blood constricts. That is hypoxic vasoconstriction. This constriction that happens throughout the pulmonary vascular bed causes an overall rise in the blood pressure of the pulmonary circulatory system, and it should normally be low. The right heart 
has to pump extra hard against that increased pressure in the pulmonary vascular bed. This happens in a person with COPD. Chronic hypoxia results in hypoxic vasoconstriction. The right ventricle hypertrophies and the result is core pulmonale. Now polycythemia occurs in a person with chronic hypoxia uh, chronic hypoxemia as well because tissues are starved of oxygen. Signals are sent to the kidney that stimulate the kidney to produce erythropoietin. Erythropoietin is a hormone that stimulates the bone marrow to make more red blood cells and to increase the oxygen carrying capacity. So people who are chronically hypoxic have an increase in red blood cells. Polycythemia causes sluggish blood flow, which contributes to core pulmonale as well, that extra pressure. Core pulmonale can progress to right-sided failure. Remember the patho of that disease state? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Right heart failure results from the right ventricle failing to act as an efficient pump to move blood through the pulmonary circulatory system. When this happens, pressure backs up into systemic circulation through the vena cava and the right ventricle enlarges or hypertrophies. Symptoms are a, a result of increased hydrostatic pressure. Remember capillary dynamics, hydrostatic pressure versus on osmotic pressure. If there's too much hydrostatic pressure, then fluid is going to leak out of the capillaries into the interstitial spaces of the circulatory system. This can happen in the lungs or in the um, peripheral system. When it's peripheral, then legs and feet, intestines, the jugular vein, hands, all of these areas become more edematous because fluid is leaking out into those interstitial spaces. And that kind of results in the symptoms that we see, hepatomegaly, abdominal pain, because these organs are congested uh, with venous blood, anorexia, nausea, bloating, venous congestion of the GI tract. Dependent edema occurs, venous congestion, and also decreased renal blood flow and congestion leads the kidneys to compensate by the renin angiotensin aldosterone system which really adds more fluid to an already overloaded system it's kind of a cascade of events that just makes things worse and worse we see coolness of extremities because of venous congestion and poor circulation and also we see anxiety and fear um, patient knows that things just aren't quite right. So that was kind of a quick review of right-sided failure. You might want to take a look at left-sided failure as well. Uh, but core pulmonale is related to the right side.